Lord, we thank you for watching over our church and caring for your people because this, although we call it our church, is your church. We are a gathering of your body of believers here whom you have saved and brought together um, for the purposes of, of worshiping you corporately and doing your work in this church and in the community around us in whatever you would have us to do. And we thank you that today we can sit under your word, your teaching. We pray that you would increase our understanding of your word, not for knowledge's sake, but for love and living and application and how your spirit desires to grow us today. So Lord, we ask that you would submit ourselves to you and what you have in store for us this afternoon. May you receive all the glory and honor and praise, not only for what happens here this afternoon, but all the fruit that you intend to bear from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a distracted world. I know some of you are sitting right in the light. You might not know that, but you can stand up and move to another place if you'd like. Uh, the stained glass is shining right on some seats. No one will. A distracted world. Um, I remember they accused us 90s kids of having low attention spans, maybe because we watched too many Saturday morning cartoons or something, but look at us now. So many more devices just constantly pinging us with updates and information, texts and alerts, some more trivial than others, and if we're honest, most of them trivial. And as if always having phones in our pockets weren't enough, now we have Apple Watches on our wrists so we can get the notifications right then and there. You've all heard the studies, the scientific explanations of the dopamine hits and how every alert gives us an addictive little high, a rush. And you've heard the stats like how we switch activities every three minutes on average and how it takes 25 minutes to recover our focus after every distraction. We are a distracted culture, a distracted people, and we love and welcome distractions a lot of the times. But almost universally, I think we also readily accept and realize that the highest performers and the most accomplished individuals in this world are those who are able to achieve and maintain a laser-like focus, both on the task at hand and in their lives at large. If it takes 10,000 hours to master something, you're not going to get there by checking Instagram every three minutes. It's those who are driven by a singular obsession, a purpose, an all-consuming passion that affects every decision and action. These are the people who become the most advanced in their craft, in their trade, composing the greatest symphonies, outperforming everyone else on the court or playing field, running the most successful corporations. NBA coach Pat Riley said, to have long-term success, you have to be obsessed in some way. What we're focused on, if we're able to, is what affects us and motivates us. For example, think back to when you started dating your spouse, when you first fell in love, and everything about you started to revolve around that person, right? When you were apart, the most mundane things would remind you of them. You'd start to schedule your life around talking to them. You'd constantly ask, what would they think of this? Would they like this? What would he prefer? What would she prefer? You'd go out of your way to do things or plan things. Maybe your lifestyle changed. You started eating better or you stopped smoking or something. This constant focus and devotion, having your attention on something, this thought of your beloved, changed every facet of your life. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 26. 1 Samuel chapter 26, and we're continuing our study in 1 Samuel. If you haven't been with us, we've been following the lives of two kings of Israel anointed by God, one of whom, King Saul, is on the throne, but is on the way out because the Lord had promised to tear the kingdom away from him. The other king, King David, is on his way in, and he's the chosen king 
of God. He is the man after God's own heart. And now David has been on the run because naturally Saul hates David. He's jealous of him. He has it out for him. And if you're not convinced, we're moving quickly through this book. This chapter here is already the end of the Saul-David rivalry. That's right. Chapter 26 is the last time Saul and David will ever interact. After this, Saul will turn his attention from David to the war against the Philistines, and he will die in battle fighting that war. And we're in the part of the story more recently in the last three weeks where David faces three temptations in the wilderness. Today is the third of the three, but just by way of reminder, the first one in chapter 24, David had the opportunity to kill Saul in the cave while Saul was going to the bathroom, but David didn't do it. And then in chapter 25, the second temptation, David almost rashly avenged himself against Nabal, who was proud and selfish and rude, but God restrained David's hand from bloodshed through the wisdom of Nabal's wife, Abigail. And now here in chapter 26, David will have a second opportunity to kill Saul. And admittedly, it looks a lot like the first story, so much so, in fact, that some scholars think that they are two retellings of the same story, just variations. Um, but actually, they're pretty different if you look at it and what actually happens. And I think as we get into it, you'll see that the similarities in there can just be attributed to the fact that parties tend to behave the same way in different situations because of who they are. You'll see the Ziphites, you'll see Saul, you'll see David. Some of them will say the same thing verbatim as in chapters 23 and 24. But it's because they're acting according to their character. Informants will continue to be informants. The vengeful, jealous king will continue to seek revenge. And the one who will not murder continue will, will continue to hold to his convictions. They behave identically in different situations because that is who they are. Saul, on the one hand, continuing his descent into wickedness and ruin, but David, by the grace and preservation of God, continuing to act rightly. Because David, as we've titled this whole series in 1 Samuel this year, is the man after God's own heart. After God's own heart. And here in this chapter, David's heart, I think, is more fully revealed to us than ever before through the things that David says. As we go through this text, you'll find that David makes multiple speeches, four to be exact, each one responding to different people in the story. And each speech shows us what makes him a man after God's heart. What we find really is that David thinks a lot about the Lord. The Lord is on his heart and mind as the all-consuming, life-directing obsession that he has. His singular, undistracted focus is on God. Every speech invokes the name of the Lord. He's always talking about God. And if you look down at the text right now, even before we read it, you'll see all those instances of the name, the word, the Lord, the Lord, in all caps, which means in Hebrew, it's not just the word for Lord or Master, but it's the very name of God himself, Yahweh. David is concerned with thoughts of Yahweh, the one true God, his God. He's concerned with what the Lord wants him to do, with what the Lord doesn't want him to do, with what the Lord has planned, with what the Lord thinks of him, with how the Lord will reward him. David's heart is completely focused on the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, and his continual meditation on God is what motivates him. It's what enlivens him and enables him to every action, decision, and belief that he has. Now, David isn't perfect. We know that. We've seen him stumble in the past, and we'll see him fall tremendously in the future. But when he does something like he does in this chapter, something so unexpected, so antithetical to human nature, it really reveals how the divine perspective sets David apart. 
And so the challenge for us today will be, do we have the same Godward focus? Do we have the same obsession, if you will? Are our lives transformed by the very thought of God in every circumstance, in every moment? So we'll go through the text in three parts as we do. We'll see three ways David's heart for the Lord is revealed in his speech. Three ways David's heart is after God's very own. So let's jump in. David's first speech is an appeal to Abishai, which reveals God's, which, excuse me, which reveals David's heart after the Lord's plan. The Lord's plan. David firmly believes that God has a greater, more perfect plan than ours, and that belief is what allows David to live righteously, even when it seems strategic to do otherwise. The stage is set in verse 1. Verse 1, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? Now, as we said, informants continue to be informants, right? So though this is practically verbatim from chapter 23, the fact is the Ziphites are snitching on him again. Verse 2, So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So Saul responds to the Ziphites by bringing his army of 3,000 and sets up camp near where David is. And David sends spies out to check if that's the case, and this is what he finds. The whole army, one night, just lying asleep. And just imagine that. This room seats, I don't know, probably four or five hundred. So imagine like six of these sanctuaries, all in a circle on this campus. And right here in the very center, King Saul and Abner, and surrounding them, 3,000 troops asleep. Now Abner is the commander of Saul's army, and in fact is Saul's first cousin by their dads. We haven't actually seen much of Abner yet, only that he was in Saul's tent during the whole David and Goliath story, and he was also at Saul's table with Jonathan, that time that David is absent, and they're wondering where he is. That's all we know of Abner, but he's about to show up a lot more getting into the start of 2 Samuel. But now on David's side in verse 6, we're introduced for the first time to even more people who will be major players in 2 Samuel. Verse 6, Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David wants to go into Saul's camp, and he asks two men, who wants to come with me? And one of them says, yes. Now, Ahimelech the Hittite, he does not go, and so we know nothing about him because he didn't say yes to this and presumably every other historically worthy thing because this guy has never been mentioned before and he'll never be mentioned again. We don't know anything about him, but Abishai, he goes. And Abishai is introduced to us by way of his brother Joab, neither of whom we've heard of before, but early readers would know Joab because Joab becomes the commander of David's army. So Abner is to Saul as Joab is to David. Does that make sense? Two kings. Two commanders of armies. But lest you assume from verse 6 that Zeruiah is their dad, she is actually a woman. David's sister, Zeruiah, daughter of Jesse. 
So these are David's nephews. Joab will later command the army, and Abishai, we'll later find out, will be the commander of his mighty men. David has a posse of 30 mighty men. Abishai is counted among them as one of the 30, but also as the leader of the 30. So as a mighty man does, Abishai says, yeah, I'll go with you. And then they head off. Verse 7, so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. So David and Abishai get to the very center of the camp where they find Saul and Abner asleep. Imagine that. At any point, one misstep, kicking over some rogue water jug, a cough or a sneeze, everyone's going to wake up, and you're in the middle of an angry mob of 3,000 warriors. You're dead. And yet here they are, looking down at their enemy, Saul, asleep at their feet. His spear is stuck into the ground by his head where he keeps it. They've caught him before with his pants down, and now they've caught him asleep and unarmed. He's vulnerable. And here's where Abishai says what all of us are thinking. He basically says, this must be God's doing, right? This is a gift. This is a work of God's divine hand to deliver your enemy into your hands. It's a miracle that we're here, that he's asleep, that everyone's asleep. His spear's here. Let's use it to kill him. After all, any burglar will tell you that crimes of opportunity are the easiest to commit. It's what they're on the lookout for, an unlocked door, an open window. That's what we have here. Saul is sleeping. There's a weapon. And so Abishai does what a mighty man does and asks to do the honors. He knows he won't miss. He knows he can do it and strike him through in one try. He won't cause any commotion. It'll be easy. This is clearly what God wants him to do. No, has enabled them to do. Right? But David says otherwise. And this is his first speech. His response to Abishai that shows his heart after God's plan why does David prohibit Abishai from striking? His response is twofold. On the one hand, if you know what God wants, you must obey him. And on the other hand, if you don't know what God wants, you must trust him. Obey and trust. So first, if you know what God wants, obey him. God's clear commandments are his plan, his will for your life. So do them. And here, David knows one thing for sure and has one conviction here, that to kill Saul would be wrong. To kill Saul would be wrong. It would be sin. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. And verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. God forbid. David is convinced he must not strike down the Lord's anointed his chosen king. It's as wrong now in the camp in the dark as it was in the cave two chapters ago. And just because the opportunity has presented itself again doesn't mean it's right this time, nor does it mean that God had wanted him to do it last time and is giving him a second chance just because he misread God's cues. What's wrong is wrong, regardless of how many occasions it comes up. Now, for some of us, it's easier for us to sin the second, third, or 100th time we're presented with the same opportunity. It erodes at our willpower 
until we finally indulge. We might think to ourselves, I resisted last time, so it's okay this time. That's one less time than I sinned. Or we think it's been a few weeks since I've fallen, so I deserve to do it again. It's like being at a dinner party and the host asks, would you like some cake? And you say, no, no thanks, I really shouldn't. And they say, please have some cake. And you say, no, thank you. And while they're all eating and the cake is served, they ask again, hey, are you sure you don't want some cake? And you say, okay, if you insist. As though their persistence changed the principle. What's happening here is not that God keeps opening the door so that David can go, okay, God, since you insist, giving me permission to do so. What's wrong is wrong no matter how many times temptation comes because it's not only God that opens doors. Satan does too. And more often than not, Satan's doors look somewhat more appealing. How do we know whose doors are whose? David keeps it pretty simple. It's that the options that involve sin and incur guilt are obviously not from God. No matter how opportune it might look or how many uh, benefits it might bring to you personally, sin is never the answer. Disobedience is never God's way out. So let me ask you this. How do you think Abishai might have felt? Abishai, this mighty man, probably thought that this venture was a commando raid, a blitzkrieg attack by cover of night. This is what he signed up for. He wanted to do it. He could have been the hero who killed Saul. But thanks to David, he has to say, I infiltrated the enemy's camp and all I got was this lousy canteen. I think we might read the story and feel for Abishai and feel like we would respond like Abishai. If you're honest, are you disappointed by this outcome? And I'll say for myself, I felt that way in the cave. Honestly, I feel like I would have killed Saul or tried to right then and there and then said, oh, sorry, God, I thought that's what you wanted. I understand how others with David thought this was God's divinely ordained um, opportunity that he was providing. It was his answer to prayer. We pray for open doors. And when God opens doors, we want to walk right through them when we see an open door. I've probably unwittingly counseled people this way in the past. But think about it. Why are you disappointed if you are? May I suggest perhaps that it's because the death of Saul seems to us like the greater good. The death of Saul seems like the greater good. It seems that sometimes based on the significance of what's at stake, we might be willing to compromise a little. That our sin might be excusable when it brings about good. Is David just being a bit of a stickler? Brothers and sisters, the reality is, I think some of us would rather endure a little bit of guilt than a lot of suffering. We'd rather endure a little bit of guilt than a lot of suffering. Maybe we don't usually lie or cheat, but we're willing to flub our time cards because this week was difficult and I deserve a little more compensation. Or no one will know if I'm not really working when I'm working from home, and the catnaps make me more productive anyways. We think I'm not a gossip, but I need to commiserate with people and badmouth my coworker or my in-laws or whatever it may be because I just need an outlet and I need to find some camaraderie. Maybe we lose our temper with our children, and sometimes we discipline them out of anger. But we justify it because we think, well, at least my wrath will make a statement about God's wrath. 
It's best that we instill some healthy fear in them. But the Lord says not to provoke our children or to discourage them, but that discipline is to be instructive and done out of love. There's so many ways that we can excuse smaller sins, thinking that we're doing it for the greater good. The bigger picture makes them justifiable. But all that reveals to bring it back to the point of focus is how little we think about God. Because who really holds the big picture? The Lord. David's singular focus on God's plan is what makes David's perspective so different from ours. David could have killed Saul. He could have ushered himself into the monarchy and rightfully sat on the throne to which he had been anointed by the Lord and started God's work a little early. Is that what God wanted? The ends justify the means? No. If the means were sin, then absolutely not. And David gets that. He focuses on the purposes and the plan of God. And that's what enables David to deconstruct this complex moral ethical situation and distill it down to one simple principle, obedience. Obedience. God desires obedience. And if you're like Abishai and disobedience ever looks like the way out, then look again. Look more closely. Don't think God has provided a way out of this suffering and so I should take it. You know what scripture says God provides a way out of? Not suffering and tribulation. We're supposed to expect that and endure that. What God provides a way out of is temptation. Temptation to walk through the wrong door. God provides the way out when we are weak. That is God's grace. And that leads to the flip side. When you know what God wants, obey him. But when you don't know what God wants, trust him. Trust him. Because God is sovereign. We believe that God is in control, has power over all things. He is working all things according to his purposes, to his intent. And because God, by character, is perfectly good and righteous and holy, and he's also loving and gracious and merciful and does not change, we know we can trust him forever to do what is right or to make what is wrong right in the end. David can resist the temptation to take matters into his own hands because he knows God's got this. God had just proven that the chapter before, chapter 25, with Nabal, when God struck down David's enemy with his own hand that David would not have to lift a finger and commit bloodshed and and incur blood guilt upon his own head. God preserved David from that blood guilt. And here David warns Abishai against the same blood guilt when he asks, who can put out his hand against the Lord anointed and be guiltless? You see, if God is the avenger, then all David needs to do is be patient and wait on the Lord to bring about his divine and sovereign plan. And that's exactly what he tells Abishai. God himself will end Saul when the time is right. We skipped over verse 10. Let's take a look at it. David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. David's saying there's a lot of options here. I don't know which one God is going to do. He could die right now. God could strike him like he, strike Nabal, like he struck Nabal. Or he could just live till old age, until it's his time. Or maybe he'll go down into battle and die. And I'll be known to David, that is what will happen. But David right now is just saying, however he does it, God will avenge. David can entrust the unknown to God because he knows God. And here's the thing. God's active and trustworthy hand was already evident this night. 
I think the author shrouds this until we get to verse 12 intentionally. But verse 12 uncovers a truth about that night. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. A deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. God's hand was active in that very moment. The reason none of the 3,000 awoke was not because David and Abishai were so careful or so super stealthy, but because of the very hand of God. The deep sleep was a divine, miraculous work. And God, in one act, simultaneously shames the wicked and protects the righteous. Pastor Alistair Begg says, the deep sleep that makes Saul vulnerable is the deep sleep that keeps David safe. You see, God has been enacting his perfect plan all along. We would do well to think of God's plan. Our problem, brothers and sisters, is I think that we think too highly of ourselves and too lowly of God. In our story, we think of ourselves as the hero. I am the protagonist. I am the main character. That's how I operate in my everyday life. When I'm on the road, I am the only rational driver. My destination is the only one that matters. My schedule is the only one that matters. Everyone else is incidental, an obstacle. They're an NPC if you're a gamer. Or when you work, it's about your productivity, your satisfaction, what you can bring to the table and contribute to the team. And home, that's your domain. That's your roost to rule, your household to manage, and your family members better step in line or stand down. David, again, has a different perspective than the rest of humanity. You get the sense that David does not think of himself as the main character. In David's eyes, the Lord is the main character, and David is just incidental. Even though David was the king, the chosen one, the defeater of Goliath, the victorious warrior over ten thousands, he had every right, we think, to think of himself as the man. Yet despite all these laurels, David did not see himself as the protagonist or the hero. That role belongs to God. That's what it means to be a man after God's own heart. When God is the main character in your story, as he should be, then you become incidental. You are here to serve his purposes and live for his glory. You are his vessel, his instrument, his servant, But the shocking alternative we frankly might prefer is this. If I am the main character, then God is incidental. We relegate God to this benevolent genie who pops in and out of my story on occasion to be prayed to for my own benefit when I need help and to be blamed when things go wrong. God must not be incidental. God is not second fiddle to your solo, sidekick to your hero, best supporting actor. God is sovereign and in full control. God makes the strongest weak, as he reveals that night. He makes fools of the wise. He humbles, even humiliates the proud. And as we see from the deep sleep he imposes on Saul's army, the hand of God is greater than the will or the power or the protection of man. God disarms kings. None can keep watch against him. You see, To summarize this point, the man after God's own heart also submits to God's own hand. The man after God's own heart waits for God's hand. 
If God is in control, we can obey him and put all our lives and concerns squarely into his hands, trusting him where all those concerns rightly belong instead of taking things into our own hands. So if you don't know what God wants you to do, trust him. And when you know what God wants, obey him. Simply do the right thing and trust him for the rest. For a lot of you, it's been tough at work lately. You've shared your stories with me. Maybe you're unhappy. You're at the dead end or an unfulfilling job. Maybe you're working multiple jobs or they've been cutting your hours or you're transitioning careers. You're being hired or you're a boss trying to hire. There's a lot of unknowns. And you don't know what God is doing or why, how long you can endure this schedule, this workload, or even if it's feasible to make ends meet. When it comes to God's plan, trust the Lord with what you don't know, your future, your income. But for what you do know, obey him. That means work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Keep your integrity. Honor your superiors. Do all to the glory of God. Or maybe marriage is tough right now. Maybe your love is growing cold or there's a long-standing marital conflict that you can't seem to overcome, haven't worked through. When it comes to God's plan, trust him with what you don't know, like what's in your spouse's heart, what secrets you're worried haven't been revealed, or when the next big blow-up is going to be. But for what you do know, obey God. That means living with your wife in an understanding way not being harsh with her, loving her as you love yourself. That means, wives, see to it that you respect your husband and do not be quarrelsome. By all means, seek help if necessary, but inasmuch as you are able, fulfill your God-given roles and responsibilities and entrust God with the rest. As one commentator said, our understanding may have to wait, but our obedience cannot. Trusting God with what we can't control enables us to live obediently in the things we can. So obey God, trust God, and wait on him. So first, David and Abishai, we see David's heart after the Lord's plan. Second, we see in David's appeal to Saul, his heart after the Lord's presence. The Lord's plan, now the Lord's presence. Another of David's primary concerns is being able to stand before the Lord. Now here we'll take two of David's speeches together in this point. First will be to Abner in verses 13 through 16, and after that to Saul. Verse 13, then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. So David sneaks out of the camp, goes across the valley far enough to be safe, but close enough to be seen and heard. Verse 14, David called out to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. So David really lays into Abner. He basically says, you call yourself a man, Abner? Aren't you supposed to be the greatest soldier in Israel? You call yourself the best? You had one job. You're the king's right-hand man, his chief bodyguard, and you have failed. And then he switches to the plural form of you in verse 16. He's saying to all 3,000 that 
All of you have failed to keep watch and protect your king. All of you deserve to die. Because for all of you, despite all of you, Saul was left defenseless. And David almost symbolically holds up Saul's spear to prove it. He says, you see, by the power of God, the reigning king has been stripped of his dominion, his power. And Abner, the esteemed warrior, has been deprived of his honor and his reputation. The point is, in the presence of the Lord, no man is strong enough. None can withstand his hand. The strongest man in Israel is a weakling against the Lord. And it's the weakness of man that is the cause of all David's problems. We see this in how he confronts Saul in verses 17 through 20. So before Abner can even respond and defend himself, perhaps he's dumbfounded or ashamed or trying to work things out still, Saul interrupts and responds. You can almost imagine him waking up amidst the commotion in a groggy haze and stumbling up behind Abner and peering out over the valley in the darkness. Verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And that's all, da- uh, that's all Saul gets to say because David starts monologuing to him too. And David said, It is my vi- voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth, away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Okay, so what's going on here? In this speech, David is essentially asking, who among men is to blame for my predicament? Which man is doing this to me? It's either my sin or the sin of others. Something is keeping me from the Lord's presence. David starts introspectively first, humbly, beginning with himself, that perhaps he is in the wrong. Perhaps he himself is the one to blame for his tribulation. He asks if he has done anything to deserve this, any evil, And in verse 19, he says, If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, Saul, may the Lord accept an offering. He's saying, maybe God's judging me for sins I've committed. If that's the case, I need to repent. You see, once again, his focus is on God and what he is doing. In fact, in Psalm 7, David himself suggests that it is right for God to judge in this way. He says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul, overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. If David has sinned, then what he's experiencing at the hand of Saul is exactly Psalm 7, exactly the type of judgment he knows he deserves. That's why he says, may God accept an offering. Let me make an offering to God for my sin. If this is my fault, let me repent. Let me make peace with God that this might stop, that I might be right with him, that I might come again into his presence. Because David knows the problem with the sin of man is that it separates us from a holy God. When we sin, God is right to cast us out, like Adam and Eve were cast out from the Garden of Eden. Not only does sin remove us from God's presence, but due to sin, we deserve to die. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But the question is not so much about our theological understanding of this truth. 
But in this case, as we're talking about how a focus affects our lives, whether this truth actually affects us or not. Do we take our sin seriously as something that separates us from God? And as something as, that is worthy of death? Do you hate that you fell into temptation again? Or have you just resigned yourself to it? Do you hate that you blew up at your spouse? Or have you just excused it? Do you hate your laziness and complacency and lukewarmness? Or have you just swept it under the rug? Do you hate your materialism and covetousness? Or is that just a part of this American culture that Jesus is just going to have to accept about us? I know I don't hate my sin enough. The Apostle Paul, when he witnesses his flesh and how the law of sin within him wars against the law of God in his mind and his heart, he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul gets it. For him and for David, the singular focus and obsession with the thought of God is what leads them to say, every inkling of sin and guilt within me must drive me to repentance or I'm out. I'm dead. I'm gone. No way I can be right with God. I'm a sinner. I need deliverance. Brothers and sisters, our hatred of sin must drive us to the cross of Jesus every single day. We must take our sin seriously. David continues, though, in verse 19, with another possibility for his troubles. He says, but if it is men, may they be cursed before God, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. David curses any men who have conspired against him. And as we know, it wasn't really anyone else except Saul himself. Saul was the man conspiring against him, who has driven David out. And here's where David reveals his greatest concern, that he has been driven out, that he has been cast away from the presence of the Lord, removed from the Lord's place. Now, David doesn't think about losing the comforts of home or the familiarity of the neighborhood. Again, he is consumed only with thoughts of God. He doesn't want to be removed from God's presence. When he talks about the heritage of the Lord, David's talking about the promised land, the land of promise for Israel's inheritance throughout all generations forever, God's chosen place, the special land that had the tabernacle, the house of the Lord, where God himself dwelt among men. Living in that land were God's chosen people, the covenant community to whom God had sworn his faithfulness. And so when David says that he was essentially told to go serve other gods, he's not saying anyone forced him into idolatry or has control over his faith or that God wasn't present in Philistia or anywhere else on the earth. We know Psalm 139, David knows God is everywhere and he cannot escape his presence. But what David means here is that if he is exiled from the land of the promise of God, if he's removed from the covenant community of God, if he's banished from the house of worship of God, which as revealed in so many of his Psalms as his greatest passion and longing, if he could not do all those things in those places, then he might as well be an idolater. Because he loves the Lord so much. He just wants to be able to worship him in the land of promise, in the place of his presence. We see this in verse 20. He doesn't want his blood to fall away from God's presence. That is, he doesn't want to die on foreign soil. Now, I think we as Texans, of all people, get this. My son and daughter are born Texans. And yeah, I'm kind of proud of that. But I was reading an article about how much pride and value of identity there is for Texans to be born over Texas soil. 
So much so, in fact, that in the article, there were multiple comments from people who, for example, are Texas natives just temporarily having to live out of state and they want their child to be a Texan, or their grandparents to be living here in Texas and they want their out-of-state grandbaby to be a Texan. And so these people have actually bagged up dirt in soil from Texas and brought it to Seattle or Boston or wherever they are to place it underneath the hospital bed in the delivery room so they could say that the baby was born over Texas soil. Now, some of you are thinking that's outrageous, and others are like, good idea. File that away for later. David's value of God's place and God's presence is along this spectrum, not from state pride or patriotism, but out of spiritual identity and out of Godward fidelity. He doesn't want to die out there. He doesn't want to be exiled among the pagans, the enemies of God. I long to be in the land of God's promise. I want to be in the house of God's presence. I want to commune with God's people. I want to be gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, inquiring in his temple. One thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing I seek after that I may what? Dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's his one passion his singular focus, to be in the presence of God with the people of God, worshiping the Lord. So you could summarize this point in this way. A man after God's own heart seeks God's face. A man after God's own heart seeks God's face. Make the worship of God and seeking the presence of God a life-motivating, pursuit-altering priority in your life. So I ask you, is worship your priority? Not just do you love music or are you a good singer? I'm not saying this as your worship leader, but do you love being here in the church of God? Not just at FUMC, which is in our church, but with the people of God at Zoe. Do you actually want to utilize your God-given spiritual gifts to serve the body? Now, so many of you served at the fall festival last weekend, many for the first time. That was super encouraging. It's so amazing to see Are you actively serving, not for your glory or recognition, but to honor God and to participate in the body he has given you? And while you're here, are you actively thinking of God or are we just reciting words on a screen? Are you here to grow in knowledge that puffs up or are you seeking for his preached word to transform you? And afterwards, are you sticking around just for casual conversation Or are you actively looking for how you can pray for others and receive encouragement yourself? Maybe this is the hardest one to ask. When you are away, are you faint and thirsty until you return? Or is church something that you're okay with just cutting out of your diet with no real repercussions, like broccoli? You know it's good for you, but you won't miss it if it goes away. There's no other place that God has given us to strengthen our weary souls. So in times of trouble, do we isolate ourselves and hunker down in our own silos? Or do we push into God's presence, into his word, into fellowship with believers? Because we need it. Because we hunger for it. Because we want to be here. The thought of God must fuel our worship. And this sounds so elementary. But when being at church becomes totally about God, that will totally change our view of the church. The songs aren't hokey. The word isn't boring. These people aren't burdens. 
If the church is about God, that will change our whole perspective. And David knows this. That is why he so longs for the presence of God. So first, the Lord's plan. Second, the Lord's presence. Third and lastly, David appeals to God. And in this speech, he reveals to us his heart after the Lord's prize. The Lord's prize. David says that his desire is for a reward, and it's the reward of deliverance. Starting in verse 21 through the end. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now in verse 21, Saul seemingly confesses his sin. He confesses that he's acted foolishly, that he's made a great mistake. But is his confession genuine? Now it's hard for us to judge. Okay, he's confessed his sin before, twice actually in chapter 15 before the prophet Samuel, and kind of in chapter 24. But from David's reaction, he seems a little wary. Though Saul invites him to return, David still departs and goes his own way. He refuses. He still distrusts Saul. Even his response doesn't address Saul's confession. He simply says, here's the spear. Send someone to come get it. In his singular focus on God, David is able to just let it be because he knows that God will judge between them. Ultimately, only God knows whether our repentance is ever authentic at all. We might fool each other, but we will never fool God. And notice what happens next. David invites God to judge him too. Verse 23 is perhaps the most important verse in this chapter. I'd call it the theme verse of this chapter. Verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. This time David's mind focuses on the reward the Lord gives, the recompense for his deeds, that those who are righteous and faithful will receive the Lord's reward. Now think about this. Why did David go into the camp at all? Right? It seems like he didn't intend to kill Saul from the beginning. So why even go? It's not like he went and then changed his mind. This wasn't like the cave either where Saul came into them and they weren't expecting it. David had to go down there intentionally. He asked someone to go with him for some reason, with some plan. And as far as we can tell, the plan was simply to go there and then take some evidence to prove he was there. And the evidence itself wasn't even for keeps as his spoils. He returns it when his purpose is done. So why did he go? I think he wanted to prove God's plan and God's presence with David. To let everybody see as David sees and to know what David knows about his Lord. That by gawking at the spear that David holds in his hand, let Saul and his army see God's apparent hand against them. And see that God's hand is with David. In a sense, Abishai was right. David actually says to Saul, the Lord gave you into my hands today. He confirms this was the night from God. This was a gift. 
God was giving Saul into David's hand, but not for murder, for restraint. Because David knows that God sees something too. David does something that night for the Lord to see in him. David this night has proven his righteousness and faithfulness. In fact, just look back with me over what our first two points were. Was not his desire to obey God and submit to his plan an act of righteousness? Doing what was right, obeying God's commands. And then the second point is not his desire to be reconciled to God from sin and to remain ever in his presence, a reflection of a heart of faithfulness that wants to ever be faithful to his Lord in worship. In our scripture reading today that Jeff read from Psalm 18, David himself wrote that and sang of how the Lord will deal with him according to righteousness, according to the cleanness of his hands. And it concludes, to the merciful, God shows himself merciful. And this is the reward that David seeks. This is the mercy he longs to receive by being merciful. Verse 24, behold, as your life, Saul, was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. The reward that David seeks for all this is deliverance. He spared Saul's life so that God would spare his life. Now, isn't that ironic? He doesn't save himself now so that in doing so, he could gain God's salvation later. Because that is the better way. God's desire, excuse me, David's desire is to be precious in the sight of God. David, whose life is consumed by the thought of God, is appropriately concerned by God's thoughts of him. Because that's the ultimate issue. As Pastor Jesse has said before, the most important thing about us is what God says about us. The hearts of all men are laid bare before God, and the same God who judges Saul for his authenticity of his repentance, David knows is the same God who will judge him for his righteousness. And he is the same God who will judge us. Brothers and sisters, do we really care about what God thinks about us? Do we live in the knowledge of the warning that we will all have to give an account to God for every action, every thought, every decision? The continual thought of God's righteous judgment should affect every moment of our waking lives. That will only happen if we keep our minds on God continually. And it's here that we all know and we all must admit that we have failed. If this sermon hits hard, it's because we have failed and we aren't righteous and we aren't faithful. We aren't men and women after God's own heart. And the fact of the matter is we can never be righteous. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. We can never be perfectly faithful. Who are we to judge whether Saul was genuine in his repentance because he repented four times in this book and kept sinning? when we ourselves have repented hundreds, thousands of times, and we also keep sinning. So the big question is, if David is right in this theme verse, verse 23, then what hope is there for deliverance? The reward of deliverance is not ours because that reward is for the righteous and that reward is for the faithful. And we have proven over and over again ourselves to be neither. What hope is there then for reward for deliverance? Christian, you know the answer. And you need to hear it again. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, 
You're just familiar with his name, but not the actual message and meaning behind his whole life ministry and his legacy and his purpose here on earth. You need to hear this, and then we'll close. As we've said over and over in this series, King David points us to the true eternal king, Jesus Christ. The prophets said that from the stump of Jesse and from the line of David, God would raise up a righteous branch. Isaiah 11.5 says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This Savior from God would be characterized by perfect righteousness and perfect faithfulness. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the righteous, faithful one who alone is deserving of all of God's rewards. Christ alone was worthy of God's deliverance, worthy of rescue from tribulation, worthy of all the things David said in verse 23. Did he receive that reward of deliverance? No. Jesus, the only righteous, the only faithful, received the penalty of death. On the cross, rather than being rescued by God, he was forsaken by God, deserted by God, made to drink the entire cup of God's wrath. Why? Was David wrong? No. Christ was not delivered because God placed upon him the unrighteousness of every man, you and me, every sinner. The record of all our sins, all the debt standing against us was nailed to the cross with Christ. On the cross, he took our sins upon himself, the death we deserved, the wages of our sin paid by our righteous Savior if we believe. If we come to him in faith, recognizing his payment on our behalf, what happened to Christ's reward then for his righteousness? Isaiah's prophecy continues. This righteous branch shall make many to be accounted righteous. You see, for those who believe, who confess their sins and trust in Jesus alone for salvation, we are now accounted righteous. God delivers us because he credits Christ's righteousness and faithfulness to our accounts. And now as the righteous ones, because of Christ's gift and his gift alone, we receive Christ's reward for his obedience. We receive his reward of deliverance. Christ has won for us deliverance. The gospel the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ alone is the ultimate message of God's own heart. It is the response to all three things we talked about today that David pursues. The gospel is the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan. The gospel is what welcomes us into God's presence. The gospel is what wins for us God's prize of salvation. Now this chapter closes with a blessing from Saul. He recognizes that David will succeed wherever he goes. Now, does he have the spiritual authority to give such a blessing? Who knows? He might just be admitting defeat, conceding the kingship to David. But here we end on a cliffhanger. David doesn't believe Saul or return with him. They're not reconciled. In fact, as we mentioned, they will never see or speak to each other again. At least it's not recorded. The David and Saul story ends for us here. And sadly for David, we find at the start of the next chapter that he does leave Judah. He does escape to live among the Philistines, away from the place and the people of God's possession. He ends up going into exile, the very thing he did not want. But he can remain there, waiting for the throne, trusting in God's promises because of his singular focus 
on Yahweh, his Lord. David can trust that deliverance is coming. Brothers and sisters, a focus on God, thinking of him and waiting on him is what will help us endure every trial right now. It will help us to face the unknown. A man after God's own heart desires God's plan, God's presence, and God's prize, and is willing to wait for it. Because praise be to God, the reward of the Lord is sure for us in Christ Jesus. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? I'm going to give you a moment in silent prayer to respond to this message. But before we do so, I'd like to share with you a quote. I actually shared this quote last year from Maurice Roberts, but in light of today's subject, it is worth reading again. It's from his book, The Thought of God. And he writes this. To have God in his mind and thought is the believer's constant source of strength. The martyr languishes in the flames, but his mind flies upward to God, his Savior, and looks forward blissfully to the glory that awaits. The imprisoned Christian forgets the harsh regime of the camp, the daily grind and grueling labor, as his mind soars upward on the wings of hope to remember God. The weary missionary struggling with unfamiliar syllables and convoluted grammar, sees beyond the frustrations of the hour as he remembers God. The faithful pastor, entombed in his study and confronted with an impossible daily agenda of duties, brightens in his heart and feels his pulse quicken as he remembers his master above. The thought of God enlivens all action. Right now, I'll give you some time to pray and respond in the quietness of your hearts. To confess where we haven't thought of God as we ought, or even where we've blatantly disobeyed, to repent of those things. And to pray that God would help us to have that singular focus on him, to love him and learn about him and know him, and act in obedience and servitude to him and him alone. Let's pray for those things that will follow his plan and seek his presence and desire his prize. Lord, hear our prayer. And we know that these prayers are ones that you love to hear and are wanting to answer if only we will be humble and contrite before you. You desire for us to know you and love you and respond to you and live lives of obedience. You desire for us to turn to you when we fail. That's why you made a way in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be honored in our lives individually, but also as a church, that we would be a church that is all about you, that is consumed by you, enthralled by you. We're not here to be entertained or to have our ears tickled. We're here to grow in faithfulness and in steadfastness and in endurance through these trials. Help us as your people to resist temptation when they come, to stand firm in the faith you've granted to us. We thank you most of all that you provided Christ Jesus our Lord as a sacrifice for our sin, that we might be made right with you. That even now, this afternoon, we can observe 
communion together and remember what Christ has done on the cross on our behalf. So we thank you and we love you. We worship you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.